The reading question was on spherical harmonics. There are eigenfunctions of angular momentum squared and the z component of angular momentum. Uh, student questions. I'm still not too sure what it means for angular momentum to be quantized. How do we see it physically? Well, one way would be uh, if you had an electron in an atom that has some angular momentum, that will give that atom some magnetic moment, send it through a magnetic field, and the beam will come out quantized. That's the Stern-Gerlach experiment that we discussed. I'm a little confused about the connection between the raising and lowering operators in the simple harmonic oscillator and the raising and lowering operators in the hydrogen atom for angular momentum. So the connection is, is that the raising and lowering operators take you from one eigenfunction to another eigenfunction that is either has a higher eigenvalue or a lower eigenvalue. So it's just a clever piece of mathematics to make life easy. Yeah? I didn't understand your response from previous when you said that, like, to see the quantization of angular momentum the strength of the device shows you that. Isn't that for spin, though? But it, it, it would be, could be any angular momentum as long as it induces the magnetic oh, moment. Okay. Um, you could also look at other properties, like transitions between levels. If you split the levels with different angular momentum, you can see the different transitions. Uh, does the resulting uncertainty, when applied to all three dimensions, become a superposition of individual uncertainties, or does each uncertainty stand alone more or less unaffected by the others? So in general, if you have some uncertainty relations, like LXLY and LZ, there's uncertainty between uh, X and Y and X and Z, so there's a correlation there. But once we get it in an eigenstate of LZ, it has a definite eigenvalue of LZ, does not have a definite value of LX, and it does not have a definite value of LY. So it will be in a superposition of LX and LY, and in an eigenstate of LZ. Never really understood how a particle can have spin of one half, which is analogous to having them undergo two complete rotations to appear similar to their starting position. Is that a wrong analogy, or is that actually possible in the classical world? So the analogy or the statement is correct. If you have spin half, you have to rotate it two times around to get back to the original wave function. You can't have that in the classical world because you only rotate once and you get back to where you were. But in quantum mechanics, there's a phase in the wave function. And for spin half, the phase only goes halfway around, halfway to 2 pi. So you have to rotate it twice to get the phase back to 1. So it's something that could only happen quantum mechanically. And light. And Pardon polarized me? light. Polarized light? Mm -hmm. What about polarized it light? It happens with polarized light. It's analogous. So you have to rotate it twice? Yeah. If you if you change the polarization of your light and you go on a you go on a close path on the on the Poincaré oh. sphere, okay. you get back to the phase. There's a chapter later on that we're gonna skip. Yep. What do you mean by rotating exactly though? Well I I could uh, rotate my coordinate system. That would be the easiest way. But you could just take the electron, grab it somehow with some atomic force uh, tweezers and drag it around something. What exactly does it mean to be the spherical What does it mean for the spherical harmonic to be an eigenfunction of L squared and L Z? So 
L squared and LZ are operators when we write the momentum as a derivative. So those operators act on functions, the eigenfunctions. When we hit the spherical harmonics, we just get back a number times the function we started with. So it's an eigenfunction. How is the spin operator different from the angular momentum operator? So the spin operator uh, has the same commutation relations as you saw in your reading, I think. Uh, What's different is that, as far as we know, the electron doesn't have any structure, but it has a spin. So there isn't actually any, as far as we know, physical object that's rotating, but it behaves like it has an angular momentum. So spin is some intrinsic property of a point-like particle, and ordinary angular momentum is the angular momentum of something actually orbiting. The last paragraph in section 4.3 where they talk about half-integer values <coughs> all being permitted, thus alluding to spin-half particles, what does that mean for the various special functions? Are the Legendre polynomials defined for non-integer values? So this is actually something that I'm working on in uh, my research. So half-integer half values of orbital angular momentum only seem to appear if you have magnetic monopoles in the system. Uh, and things get a little tricky. You don't get spherical harmonics, you get some other functions. And they don't have Laguerre polynomials, they have Jacobi polynomials. And uh, we're not going to talk about magnetic monopoles. But there's more, beyond, there's more to do beyond what's in our textbook. You can save it for grad school. Okay. Any other questions? Let's talk about Thanksgiving. My experience is that no one shows up on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving because most people are on a plane somewhere. So I propose we will not have a class on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We can schedule a makeup lecture uh, when we get closer to Thanksgiving, depending on how you guys feel at that point. I'm sure all of you right now would want to have an extra lecture on quantum mechanics. But you might be busy by that time, so we'll, we'll talk about it in November. But uh, feel free to get on a plane on Wednesday, as far as I'm concerned. Not this Wednesday. Okay, last time we started angular momentum, we worked out the commutators and found that the components don't commute, so we can't measure all three components simultaneously. We decided that we would measure angular momentum squared and LZ. And then, pardon me? Oops. <laughs> Commutators. And then we made some raising and lowering operators to make life easier. So we applied uh, the raising operator to an eigenstate of LZ. So we made up this fictitious eigenstate phi. We said its eigenvalue under L squared was lambda eigenvalue under LZ was mu. And at this point we don't know what those numbers are. But applying the commutators of angular momentum, we know the commutators of L plus and L minus. And so we can figure out what happens when we apply, we look at L squared acting on the raising operator on the eigenfunction. And this raised or lower guy has the same eigenvalue, lambda as it did before you raised and lower it. So raising and lowering 
doesn't change the L squared eigenvalue. It's still lambda. But if we look at LZ, if we act with LZ on something that we've raised or lowered, we shift its eigenvalue by plus or minus h bar. So that's why L plus is a raising and L minus is a lowering. It changes this LZ eigenvalue by plus or minus h bar. But <coughs> we know that mu squared should be less than lambda squared because L squared has an LZ squared in it. So LZ squared can't be bigger than L squared. So if we keep raising up, eventually we have to get to an end. So there must be a, a maximum value of mu that's allowed. So we call that the top state, the top of the ladder. And if we try to raise it one more time, we must get zero, because there can't be any more states. And so we defined the eigenvalue of LZ for the top state. We decided to call that L times h bar. So that's the maximum value that mu can take. And this guy still will assume it still has this L squared eigenvalue lambda. Now we're going to play around with raising and lowering operators and figure out what the possible values of lambda and mu are. So as an intermediate step, we'll need to know what L plus times L minus and L minus times L plus is. So we know the definition. It's just Lx plus or minus I Ly. Then we'll multiply by the opposite guy. So the squared terms are easy. There's an LX squared and an LY squared. And then acting here, this plus minus acting on LX will give us a plus minus, but we're going to write it in the other order. So I'll write to minus plus I lx ly, so this term there, minus ly lx. And we know that l squared is lx squared plus ly squared plus lz squared, so we can write this in terms of things that we know their eigenvalues. l squared minus lz squared. And this thing in parentheses is a commutator. And we know it's ih bar lz. So that's L squared minus LZ squared plus or minus H bar LZ. That means we can write L squared in terms of raising and lowering operators. Just switching things around. So now if we take L squared, act on our top state. In mathematics it's probably called the highest weight state. So we can write that as L minus times L plus plus LZ squared plus H bar LZ. 
acting on the top state. And I picked L minus L plus because I know what L plus does to the top state. It gives back zero because we can't get higher than the top. So this is zero. Uh, we know that uh, the top state had an eigenvalue h bar L. So if I act with, this is LZ squared. If I act with LZ squared, I'll get h bar squared L squared. That was just the definition of L. It's the eigenvalue of the top state. And we'll get plus h bar L. So LZ squared acting on this top state we said had eigenvalue lambda. Now we know what it is. It's h bar squared times L times L plus 1. And we just use the commutators to find that. So we can also use the lowering operator. Starting the top, we can lower, lower, lower. But if we, we can't go on forever because mu gets reduced by minus h bar each time. So we get something that's arbitrarily negative. But mu squared has to be less than lambda squared. So there must be a bottom state, too. And if we raise lower it one more time, we must get 0 again. So let's call the eigenvalue of the bottom state h bar l bottom. And we'll still have lambda, which is L times L plus 1, as its eigenvalue for L squared. And then we'll do the same thing on the bottom state. We'll write it in terms of raising and lowering operators. But we'll choose L plus L minus this time, because we know what L minus gives a 0. So that will simplify life. This time it's minus h bar LZ. So we get 0 plus h bar squared L bottom squared minus h bar squared L bottom. So that tells us lambda is h bar squared L bottom times L bottom minus 1. But we already know that's equal to h bar squared L times L plus 1. So we have a quadratic equation, yes? Um, there is, when you converted the LZ back to the eigenvalue of h bar L, you miss, you drop up higher, 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 higher. There, you, it should be h bar squared. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. h bar times h bar L. Just like here. So we have a quadratic equation for LB. So it has two solutions. One solution is LB is L plus 1. The other solution is LB equals minus L. So in this case, we're saying LB is L plus 1. And then LB minus 1 would be L. This one, we're saying LB is minus L. And then LB minus 1 is minus L minus 1. But there was an extra minus sign, so it's L plus 1. And one of these is obviously wrong.
So if we made LB L plus 1, first of all, it would be higher than the highest state. And then, well, it's just crazy. So not that one. So it must be minus L. So let's call this thing that we called mu, let's call it h bar m. That's the definition of m. Then we know that m must be range from minus l, which is the bottom state. Then we can raise it with the raising operator by 1. And we can keep doing that until we get up to l. So those are the possible eigenvalues of lz. So there's a finite number of steps here. Let's call the number of steps n. Then L must be minus L plus n. And so we can solve for L. L is n over 2. And since n was the number of steps, it was an integer. So this tells us we could get integer or half integer values. And that all just came from the commutators. Didn't have to solve any differential equations. Now we're going to relate it back to the differential equations that we already solved. Because really, we love differential equations. But since we already solved them, we might as well know how they're related. So our angular momentum is h bar over i r cross grad. And in E&M, he worked out what grad is in spherical coordinates. Right? So it's got an r hat term, a theta hat term, with a d by d theta, phi hat term, the d by d phi. So if I draw a little coordinate system here, if I have my r vector here, then theta is pointing in the direction where theta increases. So theta hat is down. phi hat is pointing in the direction where phi increases. And we know that r is the magnitude of r times r hat. So we can write the angular momentum in terms of these guys. We'll have an r, r hat, cross r hat, d by dr, an r hat cross theta hat, d by d theta, and an r hat cross phi hat. d by d phi, and a 1 over sine theta. 
So R hat cross R hat used to be zero back in the day. It's still zero. Phi hat, oh, R hat cross theta hat. Theta is going down, so R is going out, so it goes in the phi direction. And R hat cross phi. R is going out and phi is going that way, so it's in the minus theta hat. And uh, with a little trigonometry, you could actually write out what theta hat and phi hat are in terms of x, y, and z. means uh, now we can plug these into this expression and finally get pick out the x, y, and z components. terms with x hat. Okay, there's an overall h bar over i. Up here we have a minus sine phi d by d theta. Down here we have a cos theta sine phi d by d phi. What? Cos theta cos phi d by d phi. Well, why we still have h bar over i. We have a cos phi d by d theta from there, and a cos theta. There's a minus sign here. And why we get there's still a minus sign out front here. Cos theta sine phi d by d phi. And for LZ we get h bar over i d by d phi. We actually worked out this component before because it was easy. So we know that the YLMs are eigenfunctions of this LZ. We already checked that. Now we just have to check that they're eigenfunctions of L squared. And 
Writing out L squared is painful, but the easiest way to do it is using raising and lowering operators. So if we write our raising and lowering operators in terms of uh, spherical coordinates, minus sine phi plus or minus i cos phi d by d theta minus cos theta plus or minus i sine phi cotangent theta d by d phi and we know that cos theta plus or minus i sine theta let's make it phi is e to the plus or minus i phi. So that means L plus or minus is plus or minus h bar e to the plus or minus i phi d by d theta plus or minus i cotangent theta d by d phi. And then we know we were able to write L squared in terms of L plus L minus, so we just have to work out L plus L minus. So it'll be an H bar squared. So oh. There's a plus or minus out front here. So we'll get one minus an h bar squared because there's an h bar in either one of them. L plus is an e to the i phi d by d theta plus i cotangent theta d by d phi. That's acting on e to the minus i phi d by d theta minus i cotangent theta d by d phi. Oh, exhausted already. Minus h bar squared, e to the i phi. Just have to take all these derivatives through. So this d by d theta doesn't do anything to the e to the minus i phi. So the first term we'll get d by d theta squared. Then we get to hit the cotangent theta. And Everyone's memorized that that's minus 1 over sine squared theta. Or you can, you can check it in one line. And there's a d by d phi. You can also go through, so we'll get a minus cotangent theta d squared d theta d phi. Since this is an operator acting on some function derivative can also act on the function, not just on the cotangent theta. Then from here we'll get an i cot plus i cotangent theta d by d phi. So first the d by d phi can act on this exponential. So that will bring down a minus i, either minus i phi. And 
then this remaining factor, d by d theta minus i cotangent theta, d by d phi. Then the d by d phi can act on this. So we get a second derivative when it goes there. And uh, it goes through here because that's cotangent theta, even though it's illegible. So we get a d by d phi squared there. And now it almost comes together. So here's a minus i cotangent theta. Here's a plus i cotangent theta. So these cross derivatives cancel. And the e to the i phi cancels with the e to the minus i phi's. So we have d by d theta squared. And we have a term with just a single theta derivative. We have a term with two phi derivatives as a cotangent squared. And we have a term with a single phi derivative. We have two of those. And magically, uh, one minus 1 over sine squared minus cotangent squared is just 1. Finally, we know L squared is L plus L minus plus LZ, LZ squared minus H bar LZ. So we just worked out L plus L minus. copy it from the line above. LZ squared, LZ is h bar over i d by d phi. So we'll get d by d phi squared. We've already got the minus h bar squared out front. And then minus h bar times h bar over i. d by d phi. So 1 over i is minus i, so these guys cancel. So I can combine these d by d theta terms. So the derivative acting on sine gives cosine. So that will give us a cotangent. And then the sines will cancel and get the second derivative squared. And then I have a 1 plus cotangent theta squared, so that's 
sine squared plus cosine squared over sine squared. And that is what appeared in our Schrodinger equation when we did the separation of variables, picked out the angular piece, we had exactly that term. So that's the differential equation we already solved, the eigenfunctions. Our YLMs. And there's no YLM for half integer L's. Let's apply this to a real-world problem. Get another almost exactly, exactly soluble problem. So we know this time-independent Schrodinger equation looks like this. Hamiltonian acting on wave function gives us energy, and we know that the eigenvalues of L squared are h bar squared L times L plus one. Dagon values of LZ are h bar m. And so we can write our sh three dimensional Schrodinger equation like this. There's a radial kinetic term. And there's a rotational kinetic term with L squared. In general, there's a potential term and that has to give us energy. So this radial kinetic term, you can massage it so it's one-half times the mass times the radial velocity squared. The rotational kinetic term, you can massage it see that it's L squared over 2i, where i is the moment of inertia, if we just had a single particle, it's the mass times the radius squared. And now we already know the eigenfunctions of L squared, so that means if we factored out the radial equation, we already know all the solutions. So a simple example is a diatomic molecule. That means there are two atoms. In general, they can be different, so they'll have different masses. And then there'll be some center of mass. The distance from the first guy to the center of mass is R1 distance of the second guy is R2, and the condition that it's the center of mass is M1R1 is M2R2. If I add uh, M2R1 to that, I'll get M1 plus M2R1 is equal to M2 times R1 plus R2. If I add 
uh, if I add uh, M2R2, here I added M2R1, I'll add M1R2, then I'll get an M1, M2, R2, it's M1, R1 plus R2, just interchanging 1 and 2. If we work out the moment of inertia for this molecule, it's M1, R1 squared plus M2, R2 squared. I can solve for R1 in this first equation. M2 squared, R1 squared is M2 squared, R1 plus R2 squared over M1 plus M2 squared. And the second term, I get to interchange 1 and 2. R1 plus R2 is the total distance between the atoms. So I can factor these terms as M1, M2 times M2 plus M1. R squared, the total distance, over M1 plus M2 squared. So it's M1, M2 over M1 plus M2, which is just the reduced mass <coughs> times the distance squared. So I'm going to pretend that I can treat these as a fixed distance apart. In actuality, <coughs> that distance is given by a wave function and there'll be that distance is quantized because it's in some there's some potential that's attracting the two atoms and so there'll be different wave functions for different values of that quantum number what we're going to see is that the excitation energies to excite to the next vibrational mode which is the guy the next furthest distance are much bigger energies than the rotational excitations. So if we only look at the very low-lying excitations, we can forget about the radial wave. The radial wave function is fixed. It's in a certain radial quantum number. We just have to worry about the rotational quantum numbers. So that means we need to solve the problem where the Hamiltonian is L squared over 2i. Unfortunately, we've already solved that problem. The answers are spher spherical harmonics. So the energies are given by the eigenvalues of L squared over twice the moment of inertia, which we worked out. So the wave functions are just YLMs. And the energy levels depend on L, but not on M. And they're H bar squared L times L plus 1 
over 2i. And L could be 0, 1, 2. So there's a 2L plus 1 degeneracy. My computer wakes up. If we apply that to oxygen molecule, to oxygens, form a diatomic molecule. So we worked out the rotational energy levels. So the energy of the first excitation between the ground state and the first excitation is L equals 1. So L times L plus 1 is 2. We need the mass of oxygen times the separation squared. Oxygen has 8 protons and 8 neutrons, so that's about 16 times the proton mass. And if we plug in the numbers of extracting from experiment, we get something like 10 to the minus 10, which is a typical atomic distance anyway. So this is just an order of magnitude estimate. But you get something pretty small, 10 to the minus 3 electron volts. So that's like, uh, if you convert that to frequency, 10 to 13 hertz, that's sort of microwave frequencies. It's actually, uh, what's the frequency in your microwave oven? I wrote it down. 2.45 gigahertz. So this is actually a thousand times more energy that you than you have in your microwave oven in that in those modes. What about the vibrational frequency? So someone has measured the vibrational frequency of oxygen, so you can extract what the energy levels are for exciting to larger distances. And you put in those numbers you get about 0.2 electron volts, which is much bigger than that. So if we're only interested in putting in low, small amounts of energy, say we're probing it with microwaves, then we'll never excite these vibrational modes. We'll only excite the rotational modes. So this is an example of a low energy effective field theory. Very fancy term. It also goes by the Born-Oppenheimer approximation. So we treat the nuclei as being a fixed distance apart and then look at small excitations around that, low energy excitations. We're not in the... There. Now here's the real picture. So there is some potential that you would be very hard to calculate between two oxygen molecules. So you'd have to work out all the wave functions of all the electrons, <coughs> and then find the Hamiltonian that represents two oxygen molecules, two oxygen atoms at some distance apart, and work out the energy as you move them apart. But you get some potential, but every potential with a minimum at the bottom looks like a harmonic oscillator. So harmonic oscillator wave function for the distance, the radial distance is probably a good approximation for this, <coughs> at least this lowest lying state. And then, since we know it's like a harmonic oscillator, there is harmonic oscillator-like spacings. Because it's not perfectly a harmonic oscillator, they'll be shifted a little. But they'll have, the low-lying ones will have some typical harmonic oscillator-like spacings. And experimentally, those are those big 0.2 eV. 
so that's infrared. Visible is about 1 eV. So if we shine infrared light on oxygen, <coughs> it can excite these vibrational modes. But if we only probe it with microwaves, then inside it, below these <coughs> transitions, there are sublevels corresponding to rotational excitations. So when we probe it with microwaves, we start it rotating. And we know the spectrum of these guys, because it's L times L plus 1. Here it's called J. So there's a J equals 0 state. That's the ground state. <coughs> and the J equals 1 goes up by 2 units. J equals 2 is 2 times 2 plus 1 is 3. So it goes up <coughs> 6. Then 3 times 3 plus 1 is 12. So you get this rotational spectrum, which uh, experimentalists can actually measure. This is one of the early, uh, yet another triumph of quantum mechanics that, that explained these rotational excitations. And it was easy. Is there any questions about that? Any chemists here today? No, one, no one's confessing. Oh, we have one minute left. So we won't start spin today. Um, so there's a homework due on Friday. Has everyone voted in the poll? Okay, when I get back to my office, I'll open up the voting one more time until Friday. Please vote. At least vote for your own question. If you don't vote for your own question, you should get minus 5% on the final. Okay, see you Friday.